This is The Guardian. Today, the dangers of gambling addiction are well understood. But what about when it comes to cryptocurrency trading? I definitely found it really tempting to look at it at all hours of the day. The Guardian's Rob Davies has been fighting an itch that just won't let up. And that's kind of pointless because, for the most part, even cryptocurrencies, which are quite volatile compared to some other types of financial instrument, they don't ping around wildly from one hour to another. But it is really tempting to go back and just see if you're up a little bit or down a little bit. For his reporting on the business desk, Rob downloaded a cryptocurrency trading platform and invested some money to see how it all works. I mean, as it happens, the timing of the article that I was writing meant that I bought when Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the other currencies I bought into were quite high, and they've pretty much declined every day since. That'll go well with expenses. <laughs> right, exactly. We only bought a little bit, I should stress. I mean, I think if I'd bought in at a point when it suddenly went up, I would have got much more of a rush. It's like gambling, actually, in that respect, in that mm. if you win early, that's often the worst thing that can happen because you're always looking to recreate that feeling. When Bitcoin was first made available to buy in 2009, accessing cryptocurrencies required specialist knowledge and a savviness with computer software that kept this phenomenon in relative obscurity. Now, more than a decade later, all you need is a smartphone. One thing I really noticed about it is how it's kind of gamified, or at least it has the trappings of social media and the way social media gives us those little dopamine hits when someone likes what we're doing or interacts with us. When my portfolio went up, I got a little notification saying, share this with your friends. Your portfolio has gone up by 1.5% or whatever it was. Right. And at that point, the opportunity came up to share that via WhatsApp or Twitter or Snap or any number of social media platforms. Now, on the days when my portfolio went down, which is pretty much every day since I've had it, nobody was inviting me to share that. And it creates a kind of positive feedback loop where every message that's being sent out is positive. Mm. Nobody's ever getting the message that actually you can lose money. The way crypto trading is happening today looks like gambling, and it certainly feels like gambling, but it's shinier, seemingly more respectable, and it's pretty much unregulated. And that comes with real dangers, which aren't always easy to spot. You know, you've got guys sitting on a park bench with their cans of beer, a couple of guys further down the bench with a crack pipe, and you can tell that those people are suffering and that they're doing something harmful. But then... You might have a few kids in suits with a phone trading crypto and they might have lost £10,000 and you wouldn't know it. Some estimates have suggested that 221 million people were trading cryptocurrencies around the world last year. And as their popularity explodes, the risk of addiction is ringing alarm bells. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, cryptocurrency trading is booming, but is it creating a new generation of addicts? Rob Davies, you're a business reporter here at The Guardian. What exactly, in a nutshell, is cryptocurrency and why has it been seen as so exciting in the last decade? 
So cryptocurrency, I think the headline is that it's an alternative to traditional money. It's a digital currency and it uses the blockchain, which is a technology that keeps a record of transactions and is decentralized, meaning you don't have one organization in charge of it. It's not the Bank of England or a government that's doing it. So people can sort of enter into transactions with one another. They don't have to pay a fee to do that. And you can also trade it in the way that you can trade stocks and shares. And how does one get into it? I mean, practically speaking, looking at my phone right now, what would I need to do to become a crypto bro? I mean, you could do it in a matter of minutes. Mm. And there are a number of ways, but I think the most accessible is to download a trading platform, a trading app that you can just get on your smartphone. You can set up an account quite quickly, link it to your bank account, and then you can buy some Bitcoin, some Ethereum, some Shiba Inu, which is a sort of dog-based meme currency, if you like. And you can start buying and selling these. And then you're away, really. So you've got the app, you're trading in, it can be like one, two, several currencies at the same time. What are you doing with it? Where is it going? You're not actually buying stuff, you're just trading in the currency itself. Yeah, you're buying something notional. I mean, when you buy a stock or a share, that's also notional to an extent, but it's backed up by a company that does something, that sells something, that provides a service. Mm. And you're buying a stake in its future performance. I mean, with a cryptocurrency, you're also buying a stake in its future performance, but it's a little less clear where that performance might come from. It's much more driven by sentiment, by other people buying in, by those sorts of intangibles. Rob, you've just written Jackpot, which is a book about gambling in the UK. At what stage did you think cryptocurrency trading started to resemble the kind of gambling we're all familiar with? I think at the point where thousands of people, and I say people, but it's disproportionately young men, both for crypto and gambling, at the point where thousands of those people are dabbling on their smartphone on a daily basis, that's when it starts to resemble gambling because it's come into the mainstream. You can pick up an app, you can start pouring money into something. It's quite easy to get obsessed with and it has the potential to lead to financial harm but also to addiction. I think that's where I see the parallels. Interestingly, gambling is actually much better regulated than cryptocurrency. I mean, I would probably argue gambling isn't regulated well enough, but cryptocurrency isn't regulated at all, more or less. So is there even a difference between someone trading Bitcoin and someone playing a slot machine in the bookies? Yes, there is a difference. If you play slot machines in the bookies, over time, you are 99.9% recurring likely to lose money because those are fixed odds games. They pay out whatever it is, 95 pence in the pound. And so therefore, over time, if you spend a pound, you will get 95p back, i.e. you will lose five pence. Whereas mm. with Bitcoin, it's more like a financial instrument. It can go up, it can go down. You can make money doing it. You can lose money doing it. But you can also pay for things with it as well. That's, I think, where the similarities end with those two things. It's more of a kind of a, a cultural, a behavioural similarity that I'm seeing between the two things. And you've been speaking to someone whose life was totally turned upside down by his addiction to cryptocurrency. Can you tell me a bit more about him? So Stephen is a really interesting guy. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm cool today, yeah. Not too bad. He's had an incredible life. He's really likeable. And he'll sort of talk the hind legs off a donkey if you let him. Yeah, I'll be every day. Okay, brilliant. He grew up on the Shetland Islands. He left school when he was, I think, 13 or 14. Got into fishing at first, but then construction. Really a self-taught guy who got into engineering and ended up digging tunnels for Crossrail and earning a pretty good salary of, I think, about £85,000. 
But Stephen struggled with addiction his whole life, with alcohol addiction, substance abuse. I don't want to speak for him, but I think he would say that that is just the way that he is made, and he has always struggled with addiction. But by 2014, I had to resign from my super career as a funnel miner because I was unsafe, I was unfit to work. So I had to quit. So Stephen started hearing about Bitcoin quite a long time ago, so 2011, 12, and he used to go on the dark web and order various drugs. And that was the sort of place where you could pay for things with Bitcoin, but you would also hear a lot more about Bitcoin. And he started getting really interested in looking at the charts that told you whether it was going up, going down, likely to go up, likely to go down. And he realized he could make money that way. And one of the reasons he wanted to make money, well, there were two reasons. One was he wanted to help his mother. Her house was falling apart and he was trying to help rebuild it. And the other was to get hold of drugs, essentially. And so one addiction kind of fueled the other in a bit of a vicious cycle. So yeah, I started tracking Bitcoin whilst I was buying Bitcoin to spend Bitcoin in the dark web. And hence I started tracking the shit and the charts of Bitcoin. That's when I really started to become extremely obsessive. You said in your piece that he had a talent for trading. What does that mean exactly? How did he get good at it? Well, for a start, he studied really hard. He read books, he attended seminars, webinars to try and learn about trading. And a trader in the city and also somebody trading Bitcoin like Stephen might be looking at charts all day, showing them whether Bitcoin's going up or down or whether stocks or shares are going up or down. But they also have a kind of wealth of historical information that tells them what other stocks and shares have done before, what Bitcoin's done before, and they can use that to make predictions based on the movements of the market about where they think it's going. And if you think you know where something's going, then you either buy more of it or you sell some of it based on whether you think it's going up or down. And there are sort of distinct patterns that are quite common in various different markets. And traders will sometimes analyse those and trade based on those. Of course, they don't always end up going the way they've gone before. You know, I studied, studied, studied. So there's no doubt at all that I got it. I taught myself how to be a good trader. I got the impression that Stephen also had kind of a natural aptitude for it. He would say that he's the kind of person who identifies patterns. And people who trade, people in the city, they often use pattern analysis to predict where they think the market's going to go. And so he would do that. I think what he said to me was he had a degree of mastery about it. So he would recognise when it was about to surge. And I think if he'd been able to keep hold of all the Bitcoin that he had, rather than either losing it or making big trades that he ended up on the losing side of, he might well be a millionaire because he was good at figuring out those patterns. But unfortunately, he was really, really bad at knowing when to stop. So that's how I kind of got into all the psychology aspects of trading, but trading is gambling. Over the last few years, we've really seen cryptocurrency going from being this niche internet subculture to something that's now promoted by the likes of Matt Damon. Fortune favours the brave. Spike Lee. Old money's not going to pick us up. It pushes us down. Exploits. And Alec Baldwin. Let me guess. You're too busy to watch this app. Uh, just like you were too busy to invest in Bitcoin or Ethereum. Kim Kardashian has dabbled in crypto. She's now being sued by investors of Ethereum Max for allegedly, and I quote, misleadingly promoting and selling the currency through her Instagram account. Rob, how exactly did crypto move into the mainstream? 
There are two key ways. I mean, one of them is straightforward advertising. If you were to travel on the Tube in London, you would see plenty of crypto adverts. And I've reported on how the number of those crypto adverts has gone up massively in the last couple of years. But I think much more important than that is social media. Crypto is really a social media beast. And there's a community of people on social media who are all chatting to each other about the next place to invest, urging each other to get involved. There are memes, hashtags, buzzwords and phrases. And that part of it is really integral to the kind of popularity and to bringing new people in, which I think those who see cryptocurrency as a Ponzi scheme would say that that social media part of it is essentially the recruitment tool. I think others would say it's just that it is more than an investment. It's also a culture and that there's nothing wrong with that. So the internet is obviously really important in all of this. Reddit seems like the natural home for crypto chat. And I do see a whole load of crypto stuff just sort of running past me on TikTok and I'm clearly just swiping too fast for the algorithm to actually target me. So Rob, if I'm not the key audience, who is? The key audience is probably men between the ages of 18 and 30 odd, much the same as gambling. And the reason for that is that those are the people most likely to take risks. And disproportionately, that is where you see the addiction problem in gambling. And I think that's where we might see problems in the future with cryptocurrency. For instance, if you look at football, again, disproportionately popular with men, that's where a lot of money from crypto is pouring in at the moment. There are cryptocurrencies or crypto trading platforms doing deals with football clubs. So essentially, you download the app, you buy a token, and then that gives you access to make decisions such as the club crest, the kit design, and even the pre-match music. So that's really who they're after. I'm sure if you wanted to get involved, they'd be more than happy to have you on board, though. So what's in it for celebrities? Why are they jumping on this bandwagon? Well, I can't speak for all celebrities, but I imagine they're getting paid. They might be getting paid for a pure endorsement. So a contract where you get $20,000 or more if you'll tweet about a particular cryptocurrency. They might also be being paid in cryptocurrency. It's naked greed, really. But do you think it's just that? I mean, as you said, there's a whole culture around it. And I guess there is something about the image and allure. And there's possibly a slight edge because you can understand Kim Kardashian wouldn't endorse Betfred, but she is endorsing crypto. So it's kind of curious, no? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting distinction. And when I spoke to Dr. Anna Lemke at Stanford University, she made a really good point, which is that gambling has a kind of stigma attached to it because it's got this reputation that's been built up over the years because of horror stories people have heard about addiction and because of the nature of it, you know, that it's, for the most part, pure chance. Crypto doesn't necessarily have that stigma about it because it can be an investment product. It does have a real-world application in certain ways. So people don't shun it in the same way as they might shun gambling. And that's probably partly for good reason, but I think there's also a danger within that. Because if somebody knows that a friend of theirs is trading in crypto, they're not going to immediately say, well, that sounds risky to me. They're going to say, oh, that's quite interesting. So have you made a lot of money? Might I be able to make a lot of money? And that's one of the ways that it spreads. Now, I want to be clear, I don't think all cryptocurrency is bad. I don't think all cryptocurrency trading is bad. I've spoken to people who've made quite a lot of money from Bitcoin, but I do think that we need to think quite carefully as a society about whether we need greater oversight of products like these and whether we need to educate particularly young people about the risks, about the dangers. How do you think the pandemic has fueled all of this? I think the pandemic has meant that a lot of us are at home on our devices for a lot longer than maybe we ordinarily would be. You're sort of sitting there fantasising about how you might improve your life when all of this dies down. And that's good for firms that 
do 100% of their business online. During the lockdown, the market for cryptocurrencies increased from a quarter of a billion dollars to more than two trillion. Do you think there's any sort of incentive given the heightened financial pressures a lot more people are under? Definitely. I was talking to the National Gambling Helpline recently and they've seen an increase in the number of people ringing them up saying that they're having difficulties with crypto, that they're trading in it and they can't stop. And one of the things that a number of young people in particular have reported is that the idea that you can make a lot of money very, very quickly is particularly attractive. So if they don't have a well-paying job, in particular, they might be trying to get on the housing ladder is something that I've been told about. They see this as a way of turning 100, 1,000 pounds into 50,000 in a very short space of time and maybe putting down a deposit on a house. Now, I find that quite alarming. I mean, it really speaks to how difficult things are for young people these days, you know, the out-of-control property market and how few people actually have the means, the resources to set themselves up Mm. for a stable life, to buy a home. And so they're turning to increasingly more desperate measures. Going back to Stephen, how much money did he make at the peak of his crypto trading career? So Stephen's life when he was addicted to Bitcoin trading and to various substances was pretty chaotic. And for that reason, he doesn't know exactly how much money he made at any one time. What he does know is that he lost a large amount of Bitcoin. Now, you access your Bitcoin by having the addresses to the Bitcoin, essentially like a password or a key so you can go and unlock your safe and get your money out. He estimates that he lost the addresses to between 5 and 10 Bitcoin. Now, depending on the price on any given day, that could be anything from about £300,000 to £500,000. And that's money that is just somewhere out there and that he will essentially never be able to access. Yeah, there could be half a million pounds of Bitcoin out there somewhere in the world. But I don't want to think about it anymore. I don't know how much he withdrew, but the issue that he told me he had and the issue I know a lot of gamblers have is the moment you have a big win... That's the big dopamine rush. But you don't necessarily cash out that day and go and spend your money on a Ferrari. In theory, you could, but quite often you just stick it straight back into the activity. But yeah, lots and lots and lots of small wins, many, many, many small losses, and then go for the big win and lose everything and start again. That tended to happen. That's what it's about. It's not necessarily about making money. It's about getting that next dopamine hit. It's about that next successful trade, that next feeling of having won. So, look... As far as I know, he is not a rich guy today. And at what point did he realise he needed to get help? So Stephen was addicted to lots of things at once, right? He started drinking from a young age, then cannabis, then harder drugs like speed and cocaine, heroin even at times. And I think when I spoke to him, he said it was when he got into crack cocaine and then crystal meth that things really started to go very badly downhill quite quickly. And where is Stephen now? Stephen is in treatment at a residential clinic called Castle Craig in Scotland, which treats people for a range of addictions, but is one of the only places that specialises in crypto. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting to rigging my career back in civil engineering. He is trying to stay away from this activity. And he has to be careful when he talks, because you can tell he's getting really excited when he's telling you about these trades that he's made. And if he starts to get excited in that way, you know, it's a risk because it would be so easy to get back into that lifestyle for him. But he's fascinating on the subject of Bitcoin because he was there 
really, really early and was so enthusiastic about it, but I think would be one of the first to warn people against getting involved in trading, even if they think they know what they're doing. There's one aspect to this that scares the bejesus out of me. There's a whole generation of boys that seem to think that with a little mobile phone that they can win. They, they can take money out of a system that is fundamentally rigged to lose. Coming up, if cryptocurrency is having a moment, who wins and who loses? So how common is Stephen's story? How widespread is the addiction problem? I think at the moment, crypto is still a relatively niche activity. So I wouldn't think it's anything like addictions that we know quite well already, such as alcoholism, gambling, drug addiction, and so on. But I think taken together with trading of other instruments, like shares, like foreign exchange, it's quite a fast-growing problem. And I know that when I spoke to the National Gambling Helpline, they said they're getting about 20 calls a week now that are related to crypto. And I think if you went back a couple of years, that number would probably be zero. Right. So this is something that I think we need to think about now so that we can work out how to deal with it. Because with all of these things, it isn't a problem until it is. And then a few years down the line, suddenly services are overwhelmed and people aren't getting the treatment and the help that they need. And do you think it's part of a bigger trend where the internet has made it easier for anyone to sort of trade stocks on their phones and maybe imagine that they can have this side hustle as tech-savvy money mavericks? Yeah, absolutely. And to be completely frank about it, some people do have a side hustle where they trade and do quite well out of it. And I've had a few people contact me in the last few days saying that our coverage has been relentlessly negative and that they've been making lots of money on crypto, on other financial instruments. And I do believe that those people are out there. I just don't think that any market works in a way where the majority of people make money, right? So I think the dream is there, the fantasy is there, and you can go online and read about people who've made lots of money the same way as you can with any get-rich-quick scheme. But the reality in many cases is very different. So those getting involved in cryptocurrencies today should really be wary of people trying to sell them a particular vision of what they could achieve. I think the likelihood of success is greater the longer you've been doing it. And I think there is an element to this where people who've held cryptocurrencies for a long time have an interest in telling new people that it's a good idea to invest because that drives up the value of that currency. And that means that the people who've had it for ages are going to make more money. So I think the longer that a currency has been in existence, the more wary people should be about becoming the latest investor. I mean, there was an advert that was posted on London buses during the pandemic that said, if you're seeing Bitcoin on the side of a bus, it's time to buy. (laughs) Now, that sentiment couldn't be less in line with sensible market behaviour if you're a trader. If you're seeing Bitcoin on the side of a bus... Now is the time to sell. That's what most sensible people would tell you because it means it's too late. You didn't get in on the ground floor. There isn't money to be made anymore. And in fact, we've seen Bitcoin and various other cryptocurrencies come down from the highs that they saw in sort of around November last year. Now, what the advocates, the kind of crypto evangelists would tell you is if you hold on long enough, it'll come back up. Mm. Now, that might be true, but I think there are question marks around whether those people telling you that have an interest in you believing that because it will make them rich. It might not make you so rich. Well, let's talk about this advertising because you've reported there's been more than ever in the UK with 40,000 ads 
about cryptocurrency placed on the London Underground in a six-month period last year. What does it say that these companies have swooped in and bought up so much advertising in the grip of the pandemic when arguably so many more people might have felt more vulnerable or easier to target? Is that a coincidence? Um, look, if you were being cynical, you would say that these companies are cashing in on people's fears, concerns, and people are perhaps particularly vulnerable to get-rich-quick schemes. You could also argue that this is just crypto having its moment, right? Now is the time when it is moving more into the mainstream, and therefore there is fierce competition to be the trading platform or the currency that people choose over others. And that's not going to turn around, right? It's only going to get more so. This is the beginning of a trend rather than the end of it. And how is the industry and its advertising regulated in the UK? So the only people who are really regulating cryptocurrency ads at the moment are the Advertising Standards Authority. And to be fair to the ASA, they've done a fairly good job. So they've banned one advert from a company called Luno Money for being irresponsible. They are currently investigating an advert by a cryptocurrency called Flocky that is named after Elon Musk's dog. Wonderful. They're the only people who are really doing anything about it at all because crypto is otherwise unregulated. Now the government has said that it has plans to toughen up that regime. At the moment, if you offer a financial product, that's regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and you're not allowed to make false and misleading claims about that product. Now, incredibly, that doesn't still apply to crypto at the moment, but the government is saying that it will. So tougher regulation is coming. I'll be interested to see if that's the end of it because there are other things that financial investment firms have to do in order to be regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. And that includes things like having fit and proper people on your board. And at the moment, crypto companies don't have to prove that to operate in the UK. So, you know, we may see greater appetite for regulation. This might not be the end of that. Surely that should send alarm bells. And I'm wondering what the cryptocurrency companies themselves have to say about this incoming regulation. Look, it's a range of responses. You know, as a business journalist, I'm quite used to going on a company website and there's a page there with a press officer that you might speak to. So many of these companies are really quite small one-man bands or small operations run by a group of people. And you end up having to go through Twitter direct messages or whatever it might be. (laughs) And some people don't respond or some people give you a kind of a screed of quite evangelical stuff about how crypto is going to change the world. And some people give you very sensible responses and probably very fair points of view. But there is a bit of an accountability deficit, I would say. Sort of crypto by name, cryptic by nature. Hmm. Rob, how worried are you about crypto gambling and the increase of that in the coming years? What I've learned from covering the gambling industry is that where there is regulatory weakness, almost always bad exploitative behaviour fills that vacuum and people get hurt. And my worry is that we're headed towards a time when gambling is likely to be regulated more strictly. The question is whether crypto will end up filling the void and people end up having serious harm done to them. And of course, if any of those people do suffer financial harm, it isn't just them that suffers. It can be family members, be children, spouses, parents. So I think that regulatory picture needs to be sorted out pretty quickly. And at the moment, it just seems like the technology is outpacing regulation and we're really kind of twisting in the wind on that. Isn't the whole point of it that there's no oversight? That's the appeal. Yeah, part of the appeal is definitely that it's just a transaction between two people without the kind of interference of either the nanny state or often vested interests and global financial systems that haven't always 
served the wider public as they should have done. And one thing that people involved in crypto often cite is the 2008 financial crash. Was the banking system safe? Was kind of global financial architecture safe? No, it wasn't. And a lot of people suffered because of that. And I think that's actually a really valid point. There is risk in every kind of financial system. And in fact, by taking transactions out of the hands of people who often have proven to be corrupt, greedy, there is a benefit to be had there. And I don't disagree with that. But I have to say, if there's no oversight of this market, I think bad behaviour, crime, they will rush in and eat up that space very quickly and people will be damaged by that quite swiftly. Rob, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Rob Davies. You can follow his reporting and more from the business desk at theguardian.com. And I'd really recommend reading Rob's book, Jackpot, How Gambling Conquered the UK, which is out in a couple of weeks. Luno, who created the now-banned London bus advert saying, it's time to buy crypto, has since said that it would feature an appropriate risk warning in future campaigns. And Florky Inu, who are also being investigated by the Advertising Standards Authority, has said that its London ads complied with all laws and regulations and that they had been approved by the governing agency implementing them. You can listen to a special episode about the relationship between football and cryptocurrency over on our sister podcast, Football Weekly. And it covers everything from clubs being funded by Bitcoin to why exactly you've started seeing cartoon apes everywhere. Just search Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. Sound design is by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Mike Lee Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 